Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show... We will be speaking with Joan Biskubic about her new book, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Joan is CNN's Senior Supreme Court Analyst. Previously, she served as an editor-in-charge for legal affairs at Reuters and as a Supreme Court correspondent for The Washington Post and USA Today. She is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of many books, including those on justice John Roberts, Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, and Sonia Sotomayor. Joan has a law degree from Georgetown University. Joan Biskubic, welcome to That Said. Great to be here, Michael. So, Joan, begin by telling us something about yourself. You're one of the more storied Supreme Court reporters in the country. So give us a little background. Sure, Michael. You know, I I often kid that the justices are appointed for life and the journalists think they are, too. So many of us come to this beat and cannot leave it. I, I just love it. I just love it. And I have worked for so many different publications, but I have just not left this beat. And in the meantime, I also got a law degree on the side. So just in a quick nutshell for your audience, uh, which I'm excited to be part of here, uh, my first confirmation hearing was the Clarence Thomas confirmation back in 1991. I was covering the court then, and uh, I was working for something called Congressional Quarterly, which some of your audience might know. A lot of people on the Hill use it. Uh, it was the Congressional Quarterly news magazine. And from there, after my Clarence Thomas coverage, I was picked up by the Washington Post to be its Supreme Court correspondent. And that was in 1992. And just to let people know kind of what was happening in my life, I was still in the middle of night law school. That was back in the era where you didn't have the 24-7 news cycle. So I was going to Georgetown on the side at night, and I had a newborn baby. My baby was also born in 92. Uh, so, so I have been covering this court full time since then and, you know, did the post in the 90s, switched to USA Today and book writing in the early 2000s, became an editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters uh, at the end of 2011, and then went out to teach in California, At uh, had a visiting professorship at the University of California, Irvine, and that's when CNN picked me up just to be a contributor, as you know well, uh, what it's like being a contributor here. But then when I came back uh, to DC, instead of returning to my job at Reuters, I went full-time at CNN. I have what I think many of my colleagues regard as the best Supreme Court gig because I get to go up to the court, watch all the oral arguments, you know, write about uh, what goes on behind the scenes and keep up with it on a daily basis, but not be our daily reporter. I get to pull back. I'm the one who's lucky enough to do the analyses, as you know, and why we're even here. I've been able to write these books on the side. So I feel really fortunate with the gig I've got. And I've, I've been really happy with CNN that, a you know, cable TV wants this kind of full-time coverage. And so that's been my journalism side. But then as I know, you know, Michael, but I'll tell the audience, my first book on an individual justice came out in 2005. And that was my biography of Sandra Day O'Connor. And then I did Justice Antonin Scalia. Then I did the political history of the Sonia Sotomayor nomination and then a book that I think a, a lot of your audience remembers is the 2019 book I did on Chief Justice John Roberts. And then that brings us up to date with this group portrait on the justices as they are now. And exactly my question was, this book is kind of a group picture of the court from the run up through the Trump years to where we are now. So why did you pick a group portrait at this point? 
Yeah, well, that was a big decision on my part because I had previously used the the arc of an individual justice's life to create the book. And I loved getting into somebody's background. You know, the Chief Justice Roberts, fascinating figure. And I was able to trace his family story and so much of his early life that shaped the kind of chief that he became, as I had done for all the my previous subjects. But there was not a single justice, Michael, this time around, when I was trying to figure out what was next, who I felt was either had the sufficient tenure to really examine that person or was sort of intriguing enough to an audience. And at the same time, I was kind of thinking, what should I be doing? I began to detect essentially what I've called the Trump effect on these justices. I was watching how, you know, picking up signals for how they were maneuvering differently behind the scenes in conference. And I was also aware of the pressures that Donald Trump was putting on this court, irrespective of individual justices being on the left or the right. He There was a lot of pressure on this court. Even, even the conservatives felt it, you know, from the way he uh, some obviously many of his legal positions that were argued before the court, but also just what he said about the court and his his efforts to challenge the independence of the judiciary. So when I signed this contract, though, in early 2020, I thought my story would be sort of exclusively something like what was going on in the interior of the court. I frankly didn't think I would have such a huge exterior story as the reversal of Roe v. Wade. In early 2020, as you know, they hadn't even thought of taking on a big abortion case like the Mississippi one or Texas SB8. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the bench. Amy Coney Barrett had just been put on the Seventh Circuit uh, in the Chicago-based appellate court. So there was so much that that really wasn't wasn't right there in the public eye. Rather, it was going to be as I was doing a lot of research on what was going on behind the scenes. And the 2019 and 2020 term had provided me lots of fodder. You know, I was able to get behind the scenes on that one. But then the real story turned out to be, obviously, the October 2021-22 term when the justices reversed Roe. And I'd like to hold for a minute talking about some of these big cases and focus sort of a little bit at the moment, uh, the parts of your book, sort of the macro parts, and that first part that I'm interested in is sort of public opinion in the court. You write, with the Trump presidency began an era for the nation's judiciary that still reverberates. The effect of Trump on judges of the American law runs deep. During his presidency, Trump upset virtually every institution in Washington, but his impact on the nation's highest court was profound. And I think most profound for this part of our conversation is the impact it has had on public opinion and the sort of undermining of the court's integrity, I think, by virtue of it. So can you talk to us about that? Yes, of course. You know, first of all, he had, you know, these three appointees in four years. So he was one fortunate president in terms of his ability to shape the court just through the personnel. But his attitude toward the court, I think, had a real taint just think of how within seven days of him taking the White House is when he instituted the travel ban that targeted certain Muslim majority countries. And when lower courts ruled against that early on, and I know you're remembering this, Michael, President Trump would say things like, just wait till I get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will be on my side. And and that's when not only did he hold up the Supreme Court as a, a institution that was going to favor him, that's when he started his references to, quote, so-called judges. And and then he, you know, continued with the the Obama judge. And one of the most unprecedented clashes that we had during the Trump presidency was when Chief Justice John Roberts decided to speak publicly about former President Trump's assertion of a so-called Obama judge. And that's when uh, John Roberts said, uh, made his statement in November of 2018, we have no Obama judges. We don't have Trump judges. We don't have Bush judges or Clinton judges. We just have these neutral judges. But Donald Trump did not let up very much personalizing his notion of the judiciary and making very personal attacks on individual judges and justices. We saw that not only at the highest levels, but even at the trial court levels. What you said, a judge of Mexican 
origins or some such thing, really demeaning the so-called integrity of the judiciary. I think that's exactly right. And what you're referring to is something during the campaign in 2016. In May of 2016, he was at a rally, and it was right after a judge in San Diego had ruled against just a, a preliminary order against Trump University. And Donald Trump said, this judge is out to get me because he's a Mexican judge. You know, the man was of Mexican descent. He had been, you know, born and raised in Indiana, was quite a, he had been quite a public servant. In fact, he had originally been put on a state court in California and former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger came out in his defense too. Every, you know, a lot of people did, but that was the first Donald Trump really public outburst. He had been having plenty of others, but he said it was uh, Judge Curiel that he claimed that he could not rule favorably on his case because he was of uh, Mexican heritage. And it was at a time as Trump then campaigning was campaigning, saying he wanted to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. But anyway, it was just all part of it was the beginning of what we were going to see week in and week out of him attacking judges and justices personally and overall conveying the message that there is no neutral arbiter here. It's only a a partisan court. And now we find ourselves with the court's approval rating from around 2000, around the Bush v. Gore period, going from 62 percent to 40 percent. And Bush v. Gore, I mean, I I covered that argument uh, for CBS. And I thought, well, my gosh, we can't get a more political case and outcome than that. But it's sort of you ain't seen nothing yet. I couldn't believe when when you had earlier mentioned those figures, I was surprised because, yes, the country was so divided over the Supreme Court and that one vote decision that gave George W. Bush the White House back in uh, December of 2000. And you're exactly right. I had no idea what would be coming some 22, 23 years later. So staying on this topic of public opinion in the court in the news these days, and I know you've been talking about it, is this code of ethics issue. Roberts, in your book, you note thought that the court is above politics. But here we have a code of ethics issue, which really is, in some sense, a very political issue. Can we trust these judges will be fair enough in assessing their own conflicts. And so can you talk about it and how you see it playing out for Roberts? Yes, uh, two things. First, I'll talk broadly and then address the chief justice's role here. First of all, I think it's a very valid concern that people out in the country have about potential conflicts of interest and whether justices are wrongly taking all sorts of gifts and financial benefits without disclosing them. Uh, You know, we've seen several instances with Justice Clarence Thomas being the beneficiary of travel and lavish lodging and uh, financial gifts and real estate transactions from Republican billionaire Harlan Crow. And, you know, it does raise the question of whether Justice Thomas should have disclosed a lot more than he did. And and then, you know, other instances not of that magnitude have come up about other justices and what they fail to disclose on the annual forms that they're required to fill out, and also whether there have been conflicts of interest that they kind of just brush off. And I think that for for many years, the public watchdog groups, members of Congress have criticized the court for not having a formal code of ethics. And I think that's all kind of come home to roost here. Now they're sort of stuck in some ways because they're probably thinking they don't want to really do it now because of all the scrutiny on one of their colleagues and a couple of their colleagues, but especially on Justice Thomas. But if they had done it before, at least they could fall back on some sort of process that could ensure that whatever explanation these individual justices have for what appear to be lapses in disclosure could have been resolved some way. You know, lower court judges have, first of all, they have a formal code. And then if there's anybody who wants to bring a grievance against a lower court judge and to question his or her conduct, there's a way for that to be resolved. If you want to question a Supreme Court justice's conduct, there's nothing you can do. And in fact, Michael, 
if a judge, while he's on a lower court bench, let's just take Justice Kavanaugh, because this is exactly what happened to him. If his conduct is questioned in some way, and during his 2018 hearings, many people lodged formal complaints at the D.C. Circuit, where uh, Judge then Judge Kavanaugh was sitting, saying that they thought his response to the committee's questions involving the potential sexual assault that he denied by Christine Blasey Ford, that his response was overly political. You know, even the late Justice John Paul Stevens had questioned his ability to be impartial. You know, that that was conduct that really did not uh, suit somebody who should be on the Supreme Court. So many, there were some 80 complaints lodged against then Judge Kavanaugh from the 2018 ordeal. And a lower court panel had started looking at them. And then what, what they said, you know, officially was once he became a justice, we had to dismiss all of these. And the the panel, the lower court panel, that was the judicial counsel set up on this, said, you know, th- these are serious complaints, but according to law, there's nothing we can do. And that's that's something that, that does disturb people, that just by virtue of then getting on the Supreme Court, anything that might have been a valid complaint won't be even answered by the uh, by the jurist at all. And so did Roberts, in your mind, make a mistake in the sort of like snarky-ish, no, thank you, I'm not going to come to the Hill and testify about this? How did you assess that? I think that any kind of lapses on the part of the chief came earlier when the court essentially dithered on the ethics question. It should have confronted this a long time ago. It's been percolating for years. You should have just gotten everybody focused to just adopt something and to have some way to inspire confidence. So I start with that. And then you're referring to the letter that he wrote to the Senate Judiciary Committee when he said, I'm not going to come up there to testify, but here's an addendum of guidance that we follow that did not, as I said, just did not inspire confidence on the part of the committee and probably not on the part of many people in the public. But now he's kind of in a bind because I don't think he can get anything close to unanimity among his colleagues right now for what any kind of formal policy should say. And the chief, for as talented as he is and as smart as he is, doesn't seem to have the moral authority among his colleagues to get them to want to do something at this point in terms of the ethics code. You followed the hearings like I did. Do you think that there is a constitutionally viable way for Congress to intervene here? Well, no, I think there probably there probably are some steps that Congress can take. But your question holds the, you know, the, and it reflects the notion, I should say, that there are serious separation of powers concerns here. You know, the the judiciary is supposed to be independent of the other two branches. So it's easy to say there should be some code of conduct, but who exactly gets to enforce that? Would it be the Department of Justice? Uh, You know, like that's going to be problematic to have the executive branch uh, trying to, you know, sanction for a particular code, justices who are appointed for life. And then Congress, that probably wouldn't work. So, you know, there's that bipartisan bill right now where some members are suggesting just you do it, Supreme Court. You adopt your own code and you police yourself, but police yourself in an effective way. Uh, because I do think there are there are separation of powers concerns that have to be addressed. And just to remind everyone listening, the only way right now under the Constitution to remove a justice is through impeachment. The same process that was used on Donald Trump, the House would have to impeach the individual and to actually have removal, the Senate would have to vote to convict. And that has never happened in the country's history. And it's not going to happen anytime soon. I suppose the Judicial Conference, which is, I guess, the enforcement body at the lower level, perhaps could have a role to play here in a code of conduct? You know, I think that the Judicial Conference could, and the Judicial Conference also could have taken a stronger hand earlier to try to at least show some concern, but the Judicial Conference is essentially them. You know, the chief presides over it, and it's the rest of the members, I think about 27, 28 
other judges, uh, you know, they're all made up from lower, they're all sort of institutionalists who don't want to rattle anything. And they, uh, they have not been effective on these issues in part because they just thought, you know, okay, we've got a few bad apples here or there and we can get rid of them. We don't have to worry about these larger questions, but lo and behold, it, it turns out that there have been, there's been enough questionable conduct. Who knows how serious the abuses are? What I always say is we don't know what we don't know. You know, there's so much I would like to know about what goes on with um, off bench behavior, but it's really hard to get a handle on it because what the justices are now putting on those annual financial disclosure forms is so minimal. I expect you really need to be in an Alstie Hastings sort of environment, a judge who is convicted of a crime, who gets ousted and then runs for Congress and serves. That, you know, it's funny you mentioned Elsie Hastings, who ended up being a member of the House from Florida uh, after, after his judgeship. He, you know, what a character. And I come back, back in the day when I was with Congressional Quarterly for a few years early in my career, uh, I actually covered that impeachment and conviction. So I want to talk a little bit about judicial activism. Conservatives have screamed about liberal judicial activists for my entire lifetime, essentially, uh, I guess predicated on their dislike of Earl Warren and the Warren court. But in your experience, is this the most activist court in modern history? Well, when you just let's just use the Dobbs case as an example. How could that not be described as an activist decision in this regard? You know, I'm going to acknowledge that there are people who will disagree with that notion on Dobbs, uh, the decision that reversed Roe. But let's just take the reality that when the justices accepted that case for consideration in oral arguments, they specifically said they were only going to be looking at whether a 15 week ban on abortions, as the state of Mississippi wanted to have, violated Roe v. Wade's viability standard. And the viability standard, as you know, was that government states could not interfere with a woman's choice to end a pregnancy before the fetus was viable. That was the 1973 rule from Roe v. Wade. And viability these days is at roughly 23 weeks. So if you have a state law that goes down that says you can't have an abortion after 15 weeks, that's a challenge to the viability standard. And that's what the justices said that they were going to assess. But they obviously went way beyond that. I mean, you couldn't go even any further than they did, as they said. And in Justice Alito's opinion, there were never any constitutional grounds for abortion rights. And just to remind everyone, the reason that was so radical is that, you know, first of all, it was nearly a, a half century old opinion. And in 1992, a group of Republican appointed justices took a serious look at whether Roe should be reversed and said, we might not have agreed with it, but at this point, it's so woven into the fabric of America socially, culturally, economically, and legally that it should not be overturned. And that opinion was written by, you know, Two appointees of Ronald Reagan, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, and then an appointee of George H.W. Bush, David Souter. It's interesting on this question of judicial activism. It, is that the conservative judges that are on the court now are really not the conservatives of Ronald Reagan or H.W. Bush? They are a different breed of conservative. Is that right? Do you think that's right? I, I think so. And I'll use another example, you know, just because what I'm trying to do for our audience is to say, here are some pieces of evidence on this. I'm, you know, I don't like to just assert that they are activists in this vein these days. I want to explain why I'm saying that. First of all, you're exactly right. If you compare the Ronald Reagan justices and we'll set aside Justice Scalia for a moment, who was also an appointee of his, you know, justice is, Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor found themselves in the middle of the Supreme Court and voted to uphold abortion rights. And they also, after having misgivings about uh, campus affirmative action, uh, decided to uphold that, too, you know, in part because of where society was and, and precedent. They had a much I can say this as, you know, pieces of evidence here for our listeners. 
they had a regard for precedent, stare decisis, as it's called with the Supreme Court, that our current justices in the majority do not. And so that's that's one thing. And then just to add in about where certain judicial appointees are, I'm going to zip down to the lower courts just for a second and point to Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas. He's the U.S. District Court judge who was appointed by Donald Trump in 2019. He's the one who rejected the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the mifepristone drug, you know, the first drug of the two drug protocol for medication abortions, he rejected the FDA's approval that dated to the year 2000 in a way that, you know, you just couldn't have imagined a judge doing that in a prior regime. You would have thought of a conservative judge as someone who wasn't making policy choices. And, you know, I, I give Kaczmarek credit for acknowledging what he did. He acknowledged second guessing the FDA. He used that, that phrase, second guessing. And, you know, you just that's what he was doing. And he was bringing his own policy, moral framework to that in a way that the conservatives of the prior generation just resisted or tried to resist, I should say. Yeah. The thing that's interesting about Kismaric and something that I would have thought that Roberts or maybe the the chief judge of the circuit where Kismaric is, is that it's supposed to be when a lawsuit is filed it goes into a wheel, they spin it, and whosoever name pops up is the judge so that you don't have this notion of forum shopping, looking for a particular judge. This judge is the only one who sits in this one particular part of Texas. And so the conservatives who are trying to be activists or use the courts in an activist way all go to him. So every case goes to him, and it's specifically forum shopped for a political outcome. Is there nothing that Roberts or the, the chief judge of the, of the, of that circuit can do about that? Cause it seems to me that that's got to be, Joan, one of the things that makes people so cynical about the judicial system, generally speaking. I think it does. Uh, just as Elena Kagan during an oral argument recently referred to it and referred to it that kind of judge shopping, uh, disparagingly. But the chief justice has never said anything public about it. And neither has, you know, the judges on the Fifth Circuit, partly because they were likely about to handle the appeal from Judge Kaczmarek. But there are pieces of legislation that have been proposed that could avoid it. There's one thing, you know, to forum shopping, which is, you know, you use that phrase. That's something that uh, litigants have done over the years. But this is indeed exactly specific judge shopping because of his unusual single judge district. Yes. It's crazy. And the other thing I think that brings disrespect to the court, you talked about answers to questions earlier about Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearing about the allegation about sexual assault. But you look at the answers of many of these justices on the question of stare decisis and specifically with respect to Roe, and they all say, of course, I'll follow uh, settled law and Roe is settled law. And bam first opportunity they have, they've already forgotten the answers to their questions. Only um, Susan Collins seems to be surprised by that outcome. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I at one point thought that maybe Justice Kavanaugh would end up somewhere in the middle on abortion, but you know who we should have believed from the start? Is Donald Trump. He vowed to appoint only justices who would have overturned Roe v. Wade, and that's what he got. All three yeah. voted right away at their first opportunity without hesitation. So let's talk about this. You have a part of the book, The Triumvirate, 40 years in the making to reshape the court. So talk to us a little bit about The Triumvirate, Don McGahn, Leonard Leo, and Mitch McConnell. And how did they, how did they work this? That was such an interesting part of the book. So spend some time talking through us. Sure. And those three figures are so fascinating. Senator Mitch McConnell, you know, the Republican from Kentucky, who was majority leader, uh, single-handedly blocking President Obama's chance to fill that Scalia seat that uh, came open in February of 2016, and then ensuring in September, October of 2020 that uh, a vacancy from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was immediately filled by Amy Coney Barrett. So he had such a strong hand. And I'll tell you what, Mitch McConnell, who is a lawyer, 
has always had an interest in judges. He uh, wrote a law review about his experience as a young congressional staffer back in the late 60s, early 70s, watching all sorts of the Senate confirmation hearings of that era from the, you know, Warren to Burger courts. And then he happened to be, you know, one of the last, if not the last senator to stand on the floor to protest the defeat of Robert Bork. And back in 1987, he was just a junior senator, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell saying, look, you all will rue the day that, you know, if I if I had a nickel for every time that Mitch McConnell warned his Democratic colleagues that they would rue the day, you know, I'd probably be very rich. Uh, and Mitch McConnell has like followed through on that. He's only gotten more powerful to do that. So he always had an interest in judges. He was always, he always had an interest in rolling back federal regulations, which, of course, the courts can do. And part of that arose from his opposition to any kind of campaign finance regulation. So there he is in the Senate, ready to work as a real partner to Donald Trump in the White House and Donald Trump's chief lieutenant on judicial selection is Don McGahn, longtime pal of Mitch McConnell's, a longtime opponent, similarly, of campaign finance regulation. And Don McGahn was through his lot in with Donald Trump as a candidate. He was one of his first, you know, high profile lawyer uh, supporters. Don McGahn was there on the stage with him when Donald Trump won in New Hampshire. And he really got a reward out of dealing, you know, he, I'm sure he had a very mixed relationship with Donald Trump. In fact, uh, one of the lines I quote him saying of Donald Trump is that he's a disruptor. This is what he's all about. But Don McGahn got what he wanted in terms of filling the bench with candidates that he believed in, including his pal, Brett Kavanaugh. So Don McGahn is an incredibly disciplined individual, and he he got those judges into position. He helped select Amy Coney Barrett, put her on deck uh, with the Seventh Circuit, and he was gone by the time they elevated her to the Supreme Court, but he had teed it up. And then finally, Leonard Leo, who probably a lot of our listeners will, will know his name because he's only gotten more attention in the news, uh, Federalist Society leader who is the consummate networker and money raiser. He has raised so much money for the cause of judicial selection and for all sorts of efforts for conservative social policy and, again, you know, anti-regulatory initiatives. And he, you know, the Federalist Society was a real partner to uh, the Trump administration, as it had been to prior Republican administrations. But as Don McGahn would retort, if you said, you know, oh, the administration outsourced this to the Federalist Society, outsourced the judicial selection, he'd say, outsourced. It was insourced. We're all part of the Federalist Society in here. We are inside the castle. But the, those three men had a really good working relationship. And when there were blips outside that little trio, they worked to resolve them and uh, had a, a very constructive partnership, to say the least. It's so interesting how they were so steadfast in their efforts and achieved those efforts. And you mentioned a phrase that McConnell said, which was, you're going to rue the day. And I wanted to make sure that the listening audience understood the context of that and Senator Reid and the filibuster rule change. So can you talk about that and then yeah, how okay, that so, played out? Yeah. Okay. So first, his first warning or his first public warning that was meaningful to me was in 1987 during the Robert Bork rejection in the Senate. And then uh, that's the seat that eventually went to uh, Justice Kennedy. Okay, so then that fast forward up to 2013. And the Republican minority in the Senate keeps blocking and blocking uh, Obama appointees to lower courts, especially to the D.C. Circuit, which obviously is a launching pad for the Supreme Court. So then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid decides that he's going to get his people, fellow Democrats, to change a rule that had required, I think it was, it was 60 votes. I mean, you had to have be able to cut off debate to take a straight up and down vote on any nominee. And he eliminated that, that filibuster option and said, you know, any candidate for the lower courts, just the lower courts, would have to have just a simple majority. Well, that allowed President Obama to uh, move several of his nominees that had been stalled, including a couple to the D.C. Circuit. But 
then minority leader Mitch McConnell said, you will rue the day that you wanted to do this. And there were a lot of liberals and Democrats who thought, you know, I, they, they had very strong misgivings about changing that filibuster rule because they worried that, you know, once Republicans got into power, it would be so easy to ram through someone they didn't like. And sure enough, that happened in the Trump years. And right away, uh, okay, so Democrats in April of 2017 tried to filibuster Neil Gorsuch. But by that time, there's a Republican Senate majority, and Mitch McConnell gets them to eliminate that filibuster option for Supreme Court candidates. You know, what Harry Reid had done had been just for lower court judges. But what Senator McConnell says is, look, you guys already lifted it for lower court judges. Now we're going to lift it for uh, Supreme Court judges. So Neil Gorsuch, who had been filibustered, got through then because they changed the rule. Now, even then, some Democrats thought, why are we even trying to have that showdown over Neil Gorsuch for the Antonin Scalia seat? Let's wait until it's not going to be such an even swap. Like, you know, Brett Kavanaugh for the uh, Kennedy seat, that was much more substantial. And then, of course, the most substantial one that they would have loved to have still had a filibuster possibility was Amy Coney Barrett for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The question, I guess, that we don't know the answer to is even if Reed didn't make the change, and I think there were almost a hundred Obama judges that were being held up by the Republican filibuster. Even if Reed didn't make that change, would McConnell so intent on reshaping the judiciary have changed it anyway when it became his turn to do so? You know, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is so effective and so single-minded on what he wants to do here. I wouldn't think much would get in his way. And, you know, when he when he ensured that there was no consideration of Merrick Garland, who was President Obama's choice to fill the Scalia seat, he made that decision by himself on a President's Day weekend when his colleagues weren't around. And he said later that he was glad they weren't around because he might have gotten some pushback on that. He just but he he's got the vision thing when it comes to judges. He can see down the road and uh, obviously has made things work. You said something before we transfer out of this triumvirate inside the castle. You mentioned a Supreme Court justice named uh, David Souter. And one of the rallying cries of the conservatives in the selection of who their nominees was, no more suitors. So tell us about that and how the trio here that we've been talking about really made sure that there were no more suitors. What does that mean, and how how do they deal with that? Right. They wanted no more suitors, and they, frankly, didn't want any more Chief Justice John Roberts, <laughs> who right. would be who would move a little bit more to the center. But David Souter, for everyone who uh, might have forgotten him, he was on. He was appointed to the court by George H. W. Bush in 1990 to succeed uh, liberal icon William Brennan. And you know the the story on uh, David Souter, according to his Republican supporters at the time was he would be a home run for conservatives. And, uh, you know, he was supported by Warren Rudman. He was he had really good support from the state of New Hampshire, where he was from, including from then chief of staff Sununu serving George H.W. Bush. Well, you know, David Souter had only been on a federal appellate court for a couple months. The bulk of his career had been in in uh, state court work. Uh, he had been the state attorney general. He had been he had been a state court judge. And Lo and behold, David Souter, if you listen to his confirmation hearings, really tipped his hand even then that he was going to be more moderate. And not only was he more moderate, he moved over time. He was, you know, completely on the left. He was voting as much with, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer toward the end as he, you know, than anyone else. So he and Justice Stevens, who was a Republican Ford appointee, they definitely banded together with uh, Democratic appointees to for a left wing. And that just drove the conservative base crazy. And that's what gave way to the mantra of no more suitors. There was a time when judges who were thought to be one way turned out to be another. We saw that most famously, perhaps, in Judge White being appointed to the Supreme Court by President Kennedy. Justice White then becomes a very conservative Judge, uh, Justice, uh, people say Kennedy would be rolling over. You saw how 
how white uh, turned out, right? Well, and that's an example of a Democratic president who ended up having a, an appointee who landed on the right. And then, of course, you have these Republican presidents like Nixon, who you know appointed Harry Blackman. And Harry Blackman was the one who gave us Roe v. Wade. And actually, what a lot of people forget is that Warren Burger, the chief justice appointed by uh, Richard Nixon, also voted for Roe v. Wade. The only two who dissented, and this goes to your point about Byron White, the only two justices who dissented from the 1973 landmark Roe v. Wade were Byron White, who you just referred to, the Kennedy appointee, and William Rehnquist, who never changed his uh, stripes, so to speak, on that one. He and Scalia were steadfast in their judicial philosophy. I'd like to turn to some of the cases. The book is so interesting in so many ways. And one of the ways that was most interesting to me as a lawyer was the different ways in which cases were decided, the horse trading and and the like. And you write, you quote a University of Michigan law professor, Rhoda Brookings Institute uh, report saying that the justices used to be influenced just by their political values, but there were places that they wouldn't go. But the current majority seems willing to go almost anywhere that politics takes them, so the precedent be damned. So let's talk a little bit about some of these cases. Let's start, if we can, Joan, let's start with the voting rights cases. Rush Go versus Common Cause, Shelby County versus Holder. Bronvich versus DNC. Can you walk us through the voting rights trilogy, I guess they are, of cases and how that came to, to be? Because it seems a good example of judicial activism in a negative sort of way. Those are excellent cases to to point to because those are cases in which Chief Justice John Roberts was with the majority. And it reinforces something I've been saying as people say, oh, John Roberts has lost this court. John Roberts is still very much in the main with this court. And I think on voting rights and race, you really see that. Uh, and just to point out the, the leading example of the trio that you mentioned, Michael, the 2013 case of Shelby County versus Holder that came from Alabama, the justices by a five to four vote lifted a provision that had forced states and localities that had a history of discrimination Force them to pre-clear, which is the language, or get get pre-approval for anything that could affect voting practices, you know, like a voter ID law or a redistricting map. And that case, with an opinion written by John Roberts, essentially said, we don't need this anymore. The Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. The country's changed. We no longer need to treat certain localities with a history of discrimination the same way. But the minute that ruling took effect in 2013, all sorts of states, you know, North Carolina and Texas, to mention two right away, instituted heavier voting restrictions that affected people at the ballot box. So that's been a really big deal. And then the other one you mentioned is the Rucho case from 2019, again, decided by a five to four court in which the justices said that judges are not allowed to resolve uh, claims of partisan gerrymandering. And you know how much partisan gerrymandering has affected voting districts across America. As Justice Elena Kagan said, voters no longer choose their representatives. The map makers are choosing their voters. That's a, that's a common phrase, but she was using that in her dissent. So I think in the, the area of voting rights and representation and core issues of democracy, this court, even before it had the supermajority, was already 5-4. Uh, very much lifting protections. And we saw that just play out in North Carolina, right? North Carolina, throughout the map that was a gerrymandered map, the Supreme Court of North Carolina turns from a majority Democrat to a majority Republican court, and they then return to the earlier map, saying we can't uh, throughout the old maps. And now North Carolina, which is a seven-to-seven congressional delegation is probably going to be 10-4 in 2024 with Republicans with 10 and Democrats with four. Yeah, you've seen how this has happened uh, across the country now in, in really crucial states. So another area that's been of interest to me and has been very active, the docket has been very active in, which is these free exercise of religion cases, the COVID restriction 
cases. So talk about the free exercise cases and particularly, I suppose, the impact that Tommy Barrett has had on the outcomes of these cases. Sure. Uh, just as Amy Coney Barrett has made all the difference in cases that have involved appeals from religious conservatives, they're winning. They're winning across the board. Uh, once she came on, they won as they challenged COVID restrictions at churches and synagogues. She uh, cast a vote with the majority in cases that allowed, you know, prayer, <laughs> prayer at a football game. Uh, and another one that most recently said that uh, the state of Maine had to help finance uh, religious education. You know, there have been all sorts of increased mingling between the public and religious. And in virtually all cases, it has benefited religious conservatives. Including Bible study at home, correct? Correct. Was it Tandem versus Newsom or something? Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Tandem versus Newsom is a very important case, and that was decided in the COVID era, and it had not even been subject to oral argument and briefing. And yet they upheld the religious right to Bible study at home. Yeah. So let's take us out, Joan, on Dobbs. We talked a little bit about it, but tell us, how did we get there? And I'm very interested in something that you talked about previously, which was the impact of the leak of the draft Alito opinion on the outcome of the case. I'll never forget the night of that leak. I can tell you exactly what I was doing at 8.32 when Politico published the draft opinion and just how I responded. I was stunned that something that extensive had leaked at that point in the negotiations. And I was stunned by what the court was doing reversing Roe v. Wade outright. And what my reporting bore out in the next couple of weeks, as I tried to figure out what the effect was, that as the justices struggled to figure out how this had happened, and as we know, they haven't figured out, even after months and months of investigation, how that document got leaked. But what they do know is that it did affect subsequent negotiations. Chief Justice John Roberts had been in the process of trying to get one more vote for some sort of middle ground decision, something that would, in his mind, allow Mississippi to enforce a 15-week ban on abortion, but not completely overturn Roe v. Wade. And the leak of that draft changed the negotiation atmosphere. You know, usually this is all happening behind the scenes. We don't know whether people are dug in, whether they're not. You don't know how they're negotiating over language. And by bringing it all out into the public, it effectively froze those votes. Just as Kavanaugh and Barrett, who might have been the ones most inclined to go with the chief for some sort of compromise ground, even that would have been problematic to abortion rights supporters, the chief just could not make any progress at all. So it affected the negotiations in the Dobbs case. But even stepping back further, Michael, I would say that it has accelerated the distrust that the justices have. I mean, Clarence Thomas has been public about this, about how, you know, they look over their shoulder. They don't trust each other as much just because of that leak. And I think that at a time when so much of America is polarized, this court was already polarized and the leak only exacerbated things. So the last question I have, in the dissent of Dobbs, it, one of the justices wrote, I think with Kagan, no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. So what are you looking for in the rest of this term and upcoming, Joan? Yes, I found that statement to be so provocative that I used it for the first page of the book. Uh, but I can tell you what we're waiting on, and we'll probably have you know several days of announcements coming up. Probably the, the one that could affect many people will be the affirmative action challenges to Harvard and the University of North Carolina. This is something that could roll back Supreme Court precedent past the Bakke decision of 1978 when the justices first said, again, by a 5-4 vote, that campuses can look to an applicant's race for the purposes of a diverse student body. And this has been something that Chief Justice John Roberts has opposed for many years. 
and many conservatives have opposed, and I think the time has come that they are, this is a court that's going to be ready to, to certainly roll back any kind of opportunity for colleges and universities to have affirmative action. Okay, so that, that's one out there. You know, the justices are also looking at uh, President Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program. And then finally, I'll mention, you know, a voting rights case. You had mentioned a trio of uh, Supreme Court decisions that certainly cut back on voting rights and uh, democratic norms. And there's a case pending right now that instead of affecting that Section 5 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, that preclearance provision that was at the heart of the Shelby County case, it now affects a, uh, another part of the Voting Rights Act that, you know, allows people to challenge voting restrictions after they take effect and they are shown to be discriminatory and how easy or hard it would be to challenge those is what's at stake in this last case I want to mention. But, you know, we occasionally have a, a sleeper. And so there there might be something I, I'm overlooking in terms of our biggies. And one last one that comes at the intersection of uh, religious rights and LGBTQ rights is one that's a follow on from the uh, masterpiece cake dispute from 2018 in which uh, a website designer who wants to add you know wedding websites to her work doesn't want to have to do wedding websites that would uh, premiere same-sex couples so so we've got lots of different cases that we'll all see by the end of June Michael so Bachman Turner overdrive things you ain't seen nothing yet and Joan you may have just given us the tip of where we're headed with this court. The book is Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Joan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great it, book. You're a fabulous reporter. Thanks, Michael. It was great to be with you and with your audience. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.